This is The Guardian. Today, for the first time in history, a black woman is set to join the US Supreme Court. How will she shape America? I do know that one can only come this far by faith. Among my many blessings, and indeed the very first, is the fact that I was born in this great country. Ketanji Brown-Jackson accepted her nomination to the US Supreme Court by calling America the greatest beacon of hope and democracy the world has ever known. Standing at a podium emblazoned with the American Eagle, flanked by the US President Joe Biden and his deputy Kamala Harris, she knew she was making history. For too long, our government, our courts, haven't looked like America. And I believe it's time that we have a court that reflects the full talents and greatness of our nation. The Supreme Court shapes the nation. It's nine justices ruling on issues of life and death. Good evening. In a landmark ruling, the Supreme Court today legalized abortions. The majority in cases from Texas and Georgia said that the decision to end a pregnancy during the first three months belongs to the woman and her doctor, not the government. On who has access to abortion, on who's allowed to marry, on who should be allowed to carry a gun. This is the court that once endorsed racial segregation and the court that eventually overruled it. But since its creation in the 1700s, the Supreme Court has never welcomed a black woman to its bench. In Katanji Brown-Jackson, that's due to change. As it happens, I share a birthday with the first black woman ever to be appointed as a federal judge, the Honorable Constance Baker Motley. We were born exactly 49 years to the day apart. Constance Baker Motley was one of the pioneers of the civil rights movement. The states, of course, have done just the opposite. And they have done it in a massive way so that the whole society is set up on a segregated basis. To Jackson, Motley is an inspiration. Today, I proudly stand on Judge Motley's shoulders, sharing not only her birthday, but also her steadfast and courageous commitment to equal justice under law. Being nominated by Judge Biden Martin is the first step for Jackson. The next will be to get the Senate to approve her. But joining a court with a conservative majority, how much influence can she have? From The Guardian, I'm Hannah Moore. Today in Focus, Biden's pick for the bench. Who is Katanji Brown-Jackson? Melissa Murray, you're a law professor at New York University, and I know you're well acquainted with the story of Katanji Brown-Jackson, who's been nominated to become the next Supreme Court Justice. To get a sense of what she stands for, it might be useful to look back at her life so far. What can you tell me about her childhood? 
While she was raised in Florida in Miami-Dade County, her parents were school teachers. Um, her father eventually left teaching to pursue a career in law. It was my father who started me on this path when I was a child, as uh, the president mentioned. Some of my earliest memories are of him sitting at the kitchen table, reading his law books. I watched him study and he became my first professional role model. He went to the University of Miami, and she talks about um, her earliest memory being a child in the Miami student housing where she would be working on her coloring books while her father worked on his law books. So he later became a lawyer for the county school system. Her mother continued as a teacher. Uh, she has a younger brother. He has been in law enforcement and also served in the United States military. So it is a pretty standard American upbringing. Um, as a high school student, she was very driven. She went to Miami Palmetto High School. Um, that's the large public high school in Dade County. She was a standout student, um, became the president of her class. She was a star debater. And I, this resonated with me because I too was a student in Florida at roughly the same time going to public schools, also participating in debate. And one of the big debate tournaments was the Harvard Invitational every year where a number of Florida students would travel uh, to Harvard. And she was among them. And that was her first time on the Harvard campus. And she cast her out, looked and decided that, yes, this is where she would like to go to college. And she recalls telling a guidance counselor in her high school that she was sort of aspiring to Harvard. And they advised her to maybe set her sights a little lower. And that also, I think, is resonant with a lot of people. I think lots of kids um, in the public school system and elsewhere, that resonates, um, certainly resonated with me. I too was told to set my sights a little lower. She also was very successful despite that initial skepticism. She went on to Harvard. She graduated magna cum laude. She took about a year to spend as a reporter for Time Magazine in New York City and then went on to Harvard Law School, where she was also very successful. From there, she clerked at three levels of the United States federal judiciary. Finally, at the Supreme Court, where she clerked for the justice whom she is likely to replace, Stephen G. Breyer. And if I've learned anything, if I've learned anything in the last 27, 28 years, it's that there are people who disagree with me. And the way to deal with them, in my opinion, listen to what they say. And if they talk enough, you will find some areas where you agree. And I imagine that her path through the legal system, working her way up the career ladder, that can't have been easy. The makeup of the US legal system is predominantly white and male. What is it about Jackson's character, do you think, that enabled her to push forward? Well, let me back up a little bit. I think it is noteworthy in answering this question that we think about the process that occurred before Judge Jackson was identified as the nominee. Um, President Biden said that he was going to name a black woman to the seat. I've made no decision except one. The person I will nominate will be someone with extraordinary qualifications, character, experience, and integrity. And that person will be the first black woman ever nominated to the United States Supreme Court. It's long overdue in my view. I that, that set off what you know I have jokingly called 
the longest short list in the world where there were, I think at one point, 12 different women who were possible prospects for the seat, including myself. And it was lovely to be included in such distinguished company. Um, but I think it made clear that African-American women are very much underrepresented in the legal profession, but where they exist, they are functioning and practicing at the highest levels. And so I, I think one of the things the Biden administration did very well with this nomination is that in highlighting so many prospects, they really made clear that this was a reservoir of legal talent that was deep and rich and had really gone overlooked for so many years. These were not people who had traditionally been considered for federal judgeships, but they should have been. So Joe Biden had this short list of remarkable candidates and he's made his decision now. Why is that choice so important? Well, the Supreme Court is the court of last resort in the U.S. legal system, and it is charged with being the ultimate arbiter of what the Constitution's provisions provide in terms of protections for individual rights, in terms of identifying and understanding the substance and scope of congressional or executive power. So the work that the court does is incredibly, incredibly important. Um, They weigh in on a number of hot button issues that affect the lives of ordinary Americans every day. Everything from abortion to the range of powers that administrative agencies may exercise to whether or not individuals may carry guns in public places. So, I mean, these are not just banal or dry and abstract issues, but actual questions that really do have an impact on the lives of everyday Americans. And the court is the last word. So it's an incredibly important institution. It's a co-equal branch uh, alongside the federal legislature, Congress, and the president. And it ultimately has the power to undo the policy choices that both Congress and the president make. So making decisions on things that are really fundamental to people's sense of identity as Americans. Yes, they weigh in on lots of questions that really go to the heart of what it means to have a family, what it means to live your life, um, the career you choose, the protections you can expect. It's incredibly important work. The Supreme Court was the one who decided in 1954 that segregation in public schools was constitutionally impermissible. On Monday, May the 17th, Chief Justice Warren read the decision of the Supreme Court justices, which ruled out segregation. I am pleased personally uh, at the vote that was handed down, a nine to nothing vote. As an African-American woman myself, I don't think my career would have been possible without that ruling. And there are nine justices on the Supreme Court the majority of whom are um, conservative at the moment. And during Donald Trump's term as president, he had the opportunity to nominate not one, but three of those justices. Can you tell me briefly about them? The first nomination, he named Neil Gorsuch to that seat. Neil Gorsuch was a judge on the 10th Circuit, which sits in Denver, Colorado. He's very conservative. It is for Congress and not the courts to write new laws. 
It is the role of judges to apply, not alter the work of the people's representatives. The second nominee, Brett Kavanaugh, he obviously had a more difficult time in his confirmation process because um, as the confirmation process went forward, there were allegations that as a teenager, he had sexually assaulted a a woman, um, Christine Blasey Ford. I have never done this to her or to anyone. That's not who I am. It is not who I was. I am innocent of this charge. Ultimately, his confirmation did go through and he's joined the court. He's very much steeped, I think, in conservative politics and and brings a conservative position to many of those issues, uh, most notably abortion. Why should this court be the arbiter rather than uh, Congress, the state legislatures, state Supreme Courts, the people being able to uh, resolve this? And there'll be different answers in Mississippi and New York. The third nomination went to Amy Coney Barrett, and that, of course, resulted from the September 2020 death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was a stalwart member of the court's liberal wing. At the time of her death, early voting was already underway in a number of jurisdictions in the 2020 presidential election. Um, But of course, Trump was still the president at this time, and he moved very quickly to fill this seat. This should be a straightforward and prompt confirmation. I'm sure it'll be extremely non-controversial. We said that the last time, didn't we? And she was highly touted by conservatives, um, not just as a woman replacing Ruth Bader Ginsburg, but one who is clearly conservative. The president has asked me to become the ninth justice. And as it happens, I'm used to being in a group of nine, my family. But this evening, I also want to acknowledge you, my fellow Americans. Had expressed skepticism of abortion and um, was very much identified and selected because of those views. So the Supreme Court makeup is not only majority conservative, but under Trump's presidency became more right wing. And that's the milieu that Katanji Brown Jackson is likely to be coming into. What kind of impact would she be able to make in that group? Her nomination does nothing to alter the ideological makeup of this court. So this isn't like Neil Gorsuch joining the court or Amy Coney Barrett joining the court where um, there's perhaps some ideological shift that might occur. She's joining a solid six to three conservative supermajority. The president, who I think sees himself very much in in the mode of a consensus maker, touted her abilities to work across the aisle, work with people of different political persuasions. She certainly did that in her time on the Sentencing Commission, which is a bipartisan institution. But I don't think that there will be many opportunities, at least not in the big cases, for that kind of consensus building. This is a court that has pretty fixed in its positions. And so I expect, at least in the short term, her role will be writing dissents to majority opinions. But I think many people hope that because she is young, she's at the beginning of her juridical career, she may have a good 30 years to sit on this court and perhaps things will change in time and there will be more of an opportunity for her to use those powers of persuasion to perhaps bring others to her side if the composition of the court later changes. She's received the nomination 
But what needs to happen now logistically to actually get her into that position? Sure. She will uh, begin almost immediately tours of the senators. So she'll meet with the senators. The president names the justice, but the appointment and confirmation can only happen with the advice and consent of the Senate. And of course, the U.S. Senate is evenly balanced at 50-50 Republican Democrats. So it is likely that this will be a party line vote with perhaps Vice President Harris casting the tie-breaking vote, which would be an historic event by itself, a Black woman casting the deciding vote for another Black woman. But she has to first go through the Senate Judiciary Committee. There will be a series of hearings. It will be quite bruising as past confirmation battles have been. Um, they, They used to be quite genteel, but in recent years, they have become very much political battlegrounds um, with lots of casualties. But um, you know, I'm not sure that it's really to the Republicans' advantage to beat up this nominee. It doesn't really change the ideological makeup of the court. And I think that many Americans are quite excited about the prospect of an historic nomination like this one, and especially when the candidate is so obviously well-qualified. You said that the hearings could be a bruising affair for her. What kinds of criticisms are Republicans and people in the conservative media making about her being nominated? Well, I think the first is the fact that President Biden explicitly said he would consider a nominee who is a Black woman, that he would name a Black woman. So already the Republicans are talking about this being a quota position. Well, you might take the single most important appointed position in the entire government and announce in public that you were filling that position on the basis of appearance not on the basis of skill or wisdom or fealty to the founding documents of the United States, but on the basis of the way the person looks. So it's not a question of saying, we found the most qualified person who happens to look this way. What you're saying is, we found a person who looks this way, who, by the way, may be qualified. That was a- no one is talking about the fact that for many, many years, we seem to have nominated, without any wide net, lots of white men, over 100 white men to this position without canvassing whether or not those were always the most qualified candidates. She has, in her past, represented um, defendants, criminal defendants, including those who have been detained at Guantanamo Bay. And I think the Republicans will definitely try to make hay of that. I imagine the Republicans may try to paint her as soft on crime, soft on terrorism, but in fact, her choice to defend Guantanamo Bay detainees really reflects, I think, an understanding and appreciation of the rule of law and the fact that there is a constitutional commitment to providing defense. Other than those sorts of things, I I really don't know what you can dig into her record to dismantle. Um, you know, she's been a very careful judge. She's written over 500 opinions. Only 14 of them have been reversed. And of that 14, four of them were decisions that were vacated by the appellate court. So that's about a 2% reversal rate. It doesn't get much better than that in the federal system. So, you know, this is a very strong nominee. And again, I think the optics of really going full bore against her is likely to be a a poor choice for Republicans, especially going into a midterm election. Coming up, what are the big cases that this new Supreme Court justice is going to be ruling on? Melissa, if, as she's 
very likely to, Katanji Brown-Jackson makes it onto the Supreme Court in the summer after Stephen Byer ends his term. What are some of the first issues that she's likely to be ruling on? Well, I think the most important issue on the court's docket for October term 2022 is the affirmative action cases that the court recently granted certiorari on. So these cases will revisit earlier precedents that have upheld the use of race uh, for achieving diversity in higher education. And, you know, this is a 6-3 conservative supermajority that has made very clear its skepticism, not only of affirmative action, but any justifications for the use of race in government policy. And that is one of the most high profile cases that she will hear in her first term. And I think it's important um, that we will have another black voice on the court when that case is heard, because previously, the only black voice we've heard on this issue at the court is that of Justice Clarence Thomas, who has been very clear about his antipathy for affirmative action. He argues that um, It stigmatizes African-Americans and makes them feel like they are entitled to certain things. I just get worn down. I was with a young woman who happened to be black in um, Kansas recently, and she said something really interesting. She said, I'm really tired of having to play the role of being black. I just want to go to school. And I think we, there's at some point we're going to be fatigued with everybody being a victim. She's of a very different, uh, not just political milieu, but I think a very different generational milieu, which is to say that um, if Justice Thomas is someone who is sort of steeped in a kind of civil rights era notion of what it means to have a Black experience. She's very much a post-civil rights movement person. Um, She's 22 years younger than Justice Thomas. Um, She has been admitted to and thrived at institutions where diversity uh, was created because of the use of race um, and the consideration of race in higher education admissions. So she's likely to have a very different view than he is. And I think it's important for the American people to understand that there could be a difference in perspectives, even among African-Americans on the court. We know that several U.S. states have recently passed laws to prohibit access to abortion. And you've mentioned that other Supreme Court justices, including Amy Coney Barrett, the most recent person to join the group, have been questioning the abortion laws that currently exist. Do you know what Jackson's view is? We don't really have a clear sense of what she would be like on questions of abortion. But I do think um, it is interesting, given Justice Barrett's comments at the oral arguments in the abortion case in December. Um, There, Justice Barrett noted that um, the prospect of safe haven laws, which allow individuals to surrender their newborns for adoption at a public site like a firehouse or a police station, essentially relieved women of the burdens of quote-unquote forced motherhood, and she questioned whether or not a right to an abortion was necessary. But I think it would be interesting to see whether Judge Jackson might have a different take on it, especially the question of whether 
abortion rights are necessary for women to achieve both their professional and educational aspirations. Remember, she's someone who's acutely aware of how difficult it can be to combine work and family and how often women may have to sacrifice professional accomplishment because of family responsibilities. She's been very candid about this. You know, she says she became something of a professional vagabond for many years as she cast about looking for work that would allow her to do meaningful legal practice, but also would be compatible with her responsibilities for her two young daughters. So I think it'll be an interesting prospect, but it's not clear that she will have that opportunity. I think the court will resolve the currently pending abortion challenges before she is seated, but um, there may be more coming down the pike. Uh, There always is. Yeah, and arguably those detours will have enriched her as a person and given her viewpoints on the legal system that many of her contemporaries won't have had. I mean, she's actually been involved in the kind of day-to-day sentencing of people, hasn't she? I think that's undoubtedly true. Um, She's not the first member of the court to serve on the Sentencing Commission. Um, Justice Stephen Breyer was also pivotal in the U.S. Sentencing Commission. But in terms of her background in criminal defense, that is hugely important. There has not been a justice on the court who was involved in criminal defense since 1991 when Justice Thurgood Marshall, who was the first African-American to serve on the court, left the bench and retired. So we've had lots of prosecutors. Um, My own justice, Justice Sotomayor, was a prosecutor in Manhattan. Justice Alito was a federal prosecutor. But we've had no public defenders. And um, since Justice Marshall, very little experience in terms of criminal defense. Melissa, you've outlined how careful Katanji Brown-Jackson has been so far, not to let her personal views be too obvious, to be a moderate, considered judge. If she gets this role on the Supreme Court, as a 51-year-old, she could be there, as you say, for several decades yet. What do you think she would want her legacy to be? What she would regard as a job well done, as a legacy worth burnishing, is really working in a court that was highly functioning. Um, Not necessarily a court that always agreed, like every member doesn't have to agree, but that they worked together well and they did their work effectively and efficiently. I I think those are the kinds of things that she's looking for. Um, I I don't think she's in it for Katanji Brown-Jackson. And how symbolic do you think she recognizes her nomination to be? Well, I think it was clear from her speech that she understands the moment. I can only hope that my life and career, my love of this country and the Constitution, and my commitment to upholding the rule of law and the sacred principles upon which this great nation was founded will inspire future generations of Americans. Thank you again, Mr. President, for this extraordinary honor. So she's aware of this moment, but she also understands that this moment is perhaps bigger than her. Melissa, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. That was Melissa Murray. Thanks again to her for making time to talk to us. If you want to hear more about what's going on in the US, The Guardian's got a whole new podcast for you. It's called Politics Weekly America, 
and it's hosted by The Guardian columnist and former Washington correspondent Jonathan Friedland. He'll have new episodes for you every Friday. And we want to hear from you, please. What other podcasts are you listening to? What do you like about The Guardian's podcasts at the moment? And what could we be doing better? Personally, I'm always up for a survey and I hope you will be too. Go to www.guardiansurveys.com forward slash podcast. It'll only take about five minutes to fill in and it'll really help us shape what we make next. This episode was produced by Ruth Abrahams, exec by Elizabeth Cassin, and sound designed by Axel Cacoutier. The executive producers are Phil Maynard and Maithali Rao. We'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian. 